We just all have wanted to celebrate each other as Black women artists in the theater and in the other genre in which we work, in other disciplines. And we wanted to find a way to bring the same kind of energy that we bring to each other in our friendships into our working conditions. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. This week, we bring you Piercarlo's interview with performer and writer Issa Davis. Piercarlo, can you tell us a little bit about Issa? As you mentioned, Issa Davis is a woman of many talents, all of them considerable. She has authored several acclaimed plays, including the historical drama Bull Rusher, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Angela's Mixtape, an autobiographical comedy with music that chronicled her coming of age in Oakland, California, under the tutelage of the powerful women in her life, including her aunt, the legendary activist Angela Davis. Issa herself also starred in the play's premiere. As an actor, she has amassed an impressive resume on stage, receiving an Obie Award for Sustained Excellence in Performance for all of the work she's done on stage in New York City. And uh, she's also acted a lot on film and TV, where her many credits include recurring appearances in the award-winning series House of Cards and The Wire. And as if that weren't enough, she's also a singer-songwriter who has released two (laughs) albums, Somewhere Else, and Tinctures. And in recent years, she's also been writing for television, including on two seasons of the Netflix series, She's Gotta Have It. Issa spoke to me from her home in Brooklyn. I asked her to tell us about the creative projects that are keeping her busy and excited these days. Well, the thing that's keeping me the most excited, it's hard to choose because I have a few creative children and I don't want to say I have a favorite. So I'll say, um, I'll say a few things. I'll say there's this really amazing project that I've been working on, um, which is an adaptation of a memoir by the youngest member of the Little Rock Nine. So what this is, is a limited television series that we're working on. And Carlotta Walls Lanier is her name, the woman who wrote this book, A Mighty Long Way. And we've just been developing it. I'm in the process of um, revising the pilot and getting the whole series together. And what's interesting about it is that it's just a story that, you know, takes on more and more resonance. It's about desegregation in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, and how so many of these issues of violence and uh, the response to change, to the call for equality, the call for justice, what kinds of conflagrations that brings. And so um, I've just been really, really, really fortunate to be able to work with Carlotta and this beautiful group of producers. And um, one of those producers, actually, I think the reason why I have this job at all is Chadwick Boseman. Um, Yeah, he and I knew each other back in the day when we both were in the Hip Hop Theater Festival in 
New York. And a lot of people don't know that Chad was also a playwright and wrote really amazing plays in verse and in the hip hop aesthetic, you know. So we knew each other from back then. And I think the reason why they reached out to me as a writer was because of that time where he and I worked together, where he actually was in a couple of plays of mine, workshops of plays of mine. So it's it's um, obviously been a huge loss with him gone um, so unexpectedly. And we're doing this project in his honor in a lot of ways, you know. Does it have a home yet? Do no, not yet. Okay. I mean, it's something that we'll be taking around, you know, to see where the right home is for it. So, so and that's Carlotta thing. is still is still with us. She's yes, she is. Oh wow, yes, she is. She she's um, such of an amazing character, and I love getting to know her. You know, um, both through her words, imagining her life. And then, of course, having conversations with her, you know, here and there. It's it's remarkable because I think um, there are so many ways in which uh, the way that I was raised um, in the family that I was raised inside of, I almost identify more easily with this generation. I guess it's just this kind of boomer generation, you know, of my mother's and of my aunts and of Carlotta's, you know, and I think it's, it's obviously that it's a, that's a function of childhood, right. You know, where uh, their story, you know, and stories and the struggle and movement that they were in and continue to be in took precedence. And so in some ways it's like, I feel like I know that, that so well, you know, it's like second nature. And then at the same time, and in some ways this is kind of a, segue to another project that I'm working on, there's all of the ways that I'm trying to establish my own voice, my own aesthetic voice. And this project that I'm working on at Performance Space New York, which is the old PS122, um, is this really amazing group of artists, um, Black women artists. There's Okuyukpakwasili, who's been on this series with you. There's Liliana Blaine Cruz, amazing actors like April Mathis, Stacey Karen Robinson, Joa Lee. There are unbelievable people who have all gathered for this. And basically, we just all have wanted to celebrate each other as Black women artists in the theater and in the other genre in which we work and other disciplines. And we wanted to find a way to bring the same kind of energy that we bring to each other in our friendships into our working conditions. And so we've been able to, with performance space, just really develop our own kind of residency that is going to have offerings where we're working on some of the unproduced plays of Kathleen Collins, who is this really powerful literary foremother that I think a lot of us are just starting to get to know over the last six years. Um, she passed away in the 80s at the early age of 46 of breast cancer, and her daughter has made it her mission to distribute her work, get her films showing, and get her writings, her plays, her short stories, unproduced screenplays published. So we're we're exploring Kathleen Collins' work, and then we're exploring a piece of mine 
and doing it in this way where we're having these outdoor performances that are, you know, COVID safe. When did when did this start and who pulled it together? I, I pulled it together, I guess. Wow, okay. <laughs> I guess I would say that, but I and want to but does I it do, have a name? Yes, it's okay. called Afro Feminonymy. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, but when I say I pulled it together, that really only means that, you know, I've been doing the organizing because, you know, I couldn't have done any of this unless it weren't this group effort and it, unless it weren't all of the many creative ideas and thoughts about how to bring us together. You know, that all, that came from, you know, the director, Charlotte Rothwaite, you know, she, I came to her and I was like, what can we do with these plays? Because, Um, Nina Collins, Kathleen's daughter, was like, I really love these plays, uh, this quartet of plays, Begin the Begin. And I just, first I was working on them myself and kind of directing them myself. And then I started talking to Charlotte about it. And she started helping me see the plays in a way that really would allow us to center the Black woman's interiority that's embedded in these plays and then we we brought them to this group of artists that you know we're all just friendly with and then we have you know we ha- we got this opportunity through performance space to have funding and have you know basically we get to take over the theater <laughs> and and i was just like okay let's let's figure out a way to do this with these outdoor performances with a kind of web based radio where we can post um film and uh, sound recordings of our sessions where we meet and also films that people are inspired to make in this process as we explore these issues around health, around our way of holding ourselves as artists at the same time that we're struggling with all of the disparities and violence that we have to contend with as Black women. And then also like this really cool like installation with music and lights and I I think I'm going to be you know in this tank full of water and like (laughs) singing there's going to be a pasture of hair there's going to (laughs) be a way for performers to be able to interact sonically with the audience but not be in the same space so we're just trying all these really cool experiments that again I don't know you know if we would have been able to have this opportunity were it not for the health emergency that we're in and also were it not for the calls for our our field to change the way that you know we engage artists right and so this way of just opening up the space and saying here's some funding you know here's the resources here's all of the things that we've had as you know these primarily white theater establishments and institutions and you know let's see if you know we can offer those resources to some of the voices that may not have been allowed in these spaces prior to this and and just see what it is that you all want to do and that's kind of i i mean this kind of model of just taking over the space and just saying like here this is this is what we're going to do it to me solves so many <laughs> of the issues you know that we've had when it comes to theater, when it comes to the art world, when it comes to film, television, you know, um, music, it's just like, just hand over the resources and we'll, we'll do what we can do with it and make some magic and make some excellence, you know, in community. What is it about this particular experience that 
you might not have been able to do in the past? Why, mm-hmm. why is it happening now? Because it's not just the fact that you got some money, right? That right. You got a grant. That's right. That's okay. right. That's right. I mean, in, in some ways that facilitated the ways in which we're able to make work, but the collaboration had already begun, right? <laughs> because the relationships had already started. The admiration for each other's work had already started. And so just like, you know, we didn't need 2020 for clarity on racial justice or all of the various inequalities that we suffer from, it's been crystal clear, you know, that once we work together, you know, and don't have to spend all of our time explaining what's important to us or why we want to do things in a certain way. Explaining to whom? Explaining to a theater establishment, right? Like instead of having to have, you know, this text that I then of like say my work or whatever that I, I then give to a theater and say, you know, will you produce this or not? I didn't have to go through that process because I already know amongst all of us as, as artists, like we are going to support each other's work, no matter what that is. And then with performance space, they simply said, this is Jenny Schlenska, who's the artistic director there. She said, you know, I don't care what you all do. <laughs> Just make something together. And I was like, that's perfect. That's really what I want, you know? So it just, there's this way in which, uh, you know, we just kind of get to leapfrog over so many of the kinds of censorship or, you know, just like the, the endless proving of value, you know, that all of us have had to do over the course of our careers, you know, um, when it comes to our work, you know, when it comes to our narratives, when it comes to our stories and our priorities and values, you know. Do you talk about with your fellow artists about the marketplace of the arts, about money, not only making a living wage, but also how once how your art is supported by the marketplace? It definitely comes up. And that was something that we prioritized as we were creating the pay structure for this was you know, I wanted to think about taking care of people through salaries in a way. Oh, wait, let me, let me stop you. That's interesting. So mm-hmm. you got this grant, you got the space from Performance Space, and then it was up to you to decide how the pay structure was, how the, the money was going to be dispersed? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's have, also revolutionary, right? Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So t- we got so the tell, space talk- and we got the money. Yeah. But it was it was not dictated how it was going to be dispersed. So yes, how did you go about uh, coming up with a plan? Right. Well, you know, as the producers in our crew, we've been working with um, an amazing, amazing project manager, um, Deidre Harrington, who's worked with New Georges. She works there, and she also works with the Movement Theater. Also, Jennifer, Jennifer Harrison Newman, who's a dear friend of mine, childhood friend, but is also an artist, choreographer, producer, and talking with them, you know, this whole concept of a budget as a moral document came up. And I was just kind of like, well, you know, what's important right now? And what's important to me is, you know, not spending money on a set, obviously, because 
you're not having a production in the same way, right? But even were we to, I would still want to have the same emphasis on taking care of the people, you know, in a time where so many of us have lost salaries, you know, due to not being able to work in a place where audience gathers or where, you know, we gather as artists, right? So I just was like, how can we give as much money as we can to all of the artists, regardless of what, you know, time you're putting in, kind of like a universal basic income. How can we give that to you, regardless of what it is that you do in this project, you know? And I think that, you know, that's been really crucial. And I also wanted to think about if there are some artists who have higher needs than others, you know, like some of us, like I'm working on this television project and I've been able to take care of my own needs that way. So my need as a, as an artist with my fee structure is less than someone who's only been working as an actor and has not gotten the same salary. And lost her income, right? That's right. That's right. So, so, you know, we were trying uh, Was this to- by consensus? Well, or- you know, um, I would say that it was more an idea that I had and then I just kind of ran it by everybody, you know, and I said, this is what I'd like to do. And like I said, you know, I, I, I was hoping for this kind of thing where some people would get more and maybe some people get less. And I think that it ended up with, you know, pretty much everyone getting an equal amount. But I think I think I'll probably end up getting less be- just because of <laughs> just because you know, I've kind of used my salary as like the contingency for if we go over budget, you know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, it's basically, you know, the way that this has all kind of come about is just that, you know, I've, I've just been trying to think through it and lead it and be, and then all of the other artists, you know, I go to them as thought partners, like, what is it that you want to do? Or how do you feel about this? Do you think that's a good idea? Should we do this? And also it's, it's been a real learning process for me because I've, you know, worked in all of these places where I'm, you know, it's just been about like, get it done, handle it, you know, result, result, result. And what's been really great with um, working in this, in this group is that I've, I've got a Deidre or I've got a Jennifer, I've got a Charlotte, a Kaneza, um, Liliana, all saying like, just slow your roll. Like, let's let's respond to this. You know, let's take time to do things on our own schedule and our own pace. Again, privileging our health, our ease, our care, as opposed to trying to meet a deadline. You know, um, trying to meet some version or of obligation that we feel we have to have because, of course, we are the way that we've been trained and the way that we're expected to behave is, you know, we have to do it twice as good, twice as fast, you know? (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's been this really, it's been this really wonderful evolution for me to, to learn how to work in this way where I'm both responsible, but also ceding control, you know? When the pandemic is over and Mm -hmm. large institutions open up again, and you start working with them again in the theater mm-hmm. as a performer and a writer. How do you think you'll be able, do you have a plan for getting them to change? For instance, I mean, the thing that you said, budget as a moral document, 
is incredible. How are you going to convince large institutions that that is a priority, for instance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How are you going to get them to understand that prioritizing your health as an artist is as important as prioritizing your performance? Right, right. Well, you know, thankfully, it's not only my job to do this. I'm so glad it's not only mine. You know, right. it's 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 the responsibility of those organizations. You know, if it, this is important to them, then you know they get to take on the this burden. And I think I think that the the list of demands, you know, was a really important blueprint, right? That um, kind of kicked off that conversation. And I think it's it's simply, you know, do you care about justice and equality? If you don't, if you don't think it's relevant, then you're going to resist kind of rethinking your organization. But if you do think it's important, then you'll listen to these coalitions, these multiracial coalitions, you know, you'll listen to people with disabilities, you know, you'll listen to people who are the original caretakers of the land that your theater is built on. And you'll, you know, start thinking about how all of the sort of, imbalances in, you know, whose stories are important, you know, can start to be rectified. And so I think it's really like, again, all of these coalitions, all of this collective work and, you know, these, these ways that we keep joining together in order to continue to articulate, you know, what it is that we want. And of course, you know, this is going to keep taking a while because we can do a lot when we put our backs into it. And and we recognize that the work is going to be hard and it's going to require change, but it can be done. You know, I, I, it really can be done. It's, it's going to be rough and it's already been really rough, you know, but ultimately it's only for the good, you know, I mean, there've been all of these reports that have come out recently about how, when you, just basically make your institution more inclusive. When you make your institution something that is actually working toward climate sustainability, you know, if you divest in fossil fuels, I know that seems kind of off target, but I don't think it is. I'm talking about just in general that, you know, when you start moving towards these goals of justice, you actually can have a higher yield when it comes to your money making. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's the thing that obviously that's how know, you convince the capital. That's how you that's right. That's how you get people to to see, you know, like, oh, this is actually going to be good for your bottom line too. You know, it's like you get your optics and you get your little money. <laughs> but it's like but you know, but sharing sharing those resources is is also really an important part of this piece, and that's where we are. I think you know, I mean, you see that with everything coming out of the Biden administration right now, and I think that same kind of ethos should really suffuse our theaters. I love catching up with her, Rob. Issa and I actually went to college together, so we've known each other a long time. Uh, but I'm curious, having listened to the interview, what uh, what stands out for you about the way she makes her art? Well, what was striking is the opportunity for her and her colleagues to really reinvent their process with the performance space uh, and the work they're doing. You mm-hmm. know, she talked about these goals of justice which to me is around shared values of social justice and equity between sort of quote unquote corporate theater owners and artists and getting to reset 
how they do business with their own project and work in the performance space. Yeah, I love you. You're talking about shared values. I think oftentimes if artists collaborate, they try to come up with shared artistic values, but coming up with shared moral values right. is, I think, just as crucial. And it's it's clear that she and her collaborators have done that. It's really inspiring. Yeah, I really enjoyed getting to know her, Pierre Carlo. Thanks so much for bringing us this interview. You're very welcome. I had a great time. If you'd like to learn more about Isa and read a longer version of this interview, you can go to uncsa.edu slash art restart. And if you enjoyed this interview, please, please let us know by leaving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe because we're going to be hearing from fascinating artists in upcoming episodes and you don't want to miss them. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.